This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 586 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. What is a hero's surge rate? Tweaking time, the world's largest bologna sandwich, an origin for the human target, deus ex machina gas, hammers and doppelgangers, and setting up the Geigerverse. This is how I got my wife to read comics for Sunday, February 27th, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and maybe leave us a review somewhere. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodcastnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. One Star Squadron number three of six by Russell Lieber and Stewart. We're back at Heroes for You Corporate HQ, where Superman has paid their board a visit. I think turning heroes into employees cheapens heroism. When they all reply that of all the hero associations out there, they're the only ones making a profit, and without them, a lot of heroes would be out of work. Clark replies, that's the problem masquerading as the solution. He's clearly not happy with the situation, and it's going to be a problem for them. Meanwhile, at the strip mall location, Power Girl listens to a self-help audiobook while Red Tornado chews out Minuteman in his office. Company rules say he should be fired, but he's going to give Minuteman one more chance. Red Tornado is very depressed, seeing the already accepted danger of death replaced by the dull and enigmatic threat of being fired, of simply being useless. Off the coast of Ireland, Jack-o'-lantern is about to save survivors of a plane crash when he gets a surge rate request in his Heroes for You app. He debates for a moment, accepts the request, and tells the survivors, I'll call you a boat. When news of this gets out, Superman announces he will recommend the Hall of Justice withdraw their endorsement of Heroes for You. Now the board needs to move quickly before they become Costume City. Either sell the company or find a scapegoat. Back at the strip mall... Red Tornado is remembering his old boss, Manhunter, and how Red Tornado only got his current job when Manhunter was fired. Meanwhile, Flying Fox is trying to sell humane mousetraps via cold calling, and it's not going well. The board calls Red Tornado and asks him to come downtown tomorrow. He assumes he's about to be canned. He asks Power Girl to take over while she's gone, and it becomes clear that she set him up for this. Red Tornado goes to the Dollar Major to shop for supplies, taking Gangbuster with him, confiding that he's about to be fired and doesn't know how to tell his family. He's sullen at dinner, and Kathy picks up on it. He admits to her in the kitchen as they clean up. When she hugs him, saying it will be okay, he replies, Everything will be okay is the lie around which I've built my life. The next morning at Heroes for You HQ, the board says they've gotten complaints about him, which we think is awesome, man, just awesome. 
They also let them know that the company's profits are about to soften, so they need to cut costs, which means heavy layoffs. And it's not like you have to worry about these people hating you. They already hate you, bro. The first to be canned, Power Girl, Tattletale. Blue and Gold, number six of eight by Jurgen Souk, Van Grabadger, Bucatello, and Sotomayor. We start with Rip Hunter, who tells Terry and two in, the two influencers that Omnizon's claims of owning Earth may be correct. During all of this, Skeets repairs Buggles post-battle. Rip says that, to be sure, he has to go back in time. The others insist on going along, but only Terry actually goes with him. Back on Bayhamore, Blue and Gold are trapped in a force field and for, informed they will fight each other to the death. If it's a fancy throne you're after, we've got some great porcelain options you should consider. Omnizon hypnotizes Booster, convincing him that Ted killed everyone he loved. They're given weapons, and the battle begins, with Ted trying to talk Booster out of it. This is the heartfelt moment when you're supposed to recognize me and come to your senses, so do it! 75,000 years ago, Rip's time bubble, tracking an energy signature. It's an explorer from Behemor planting a beacon, the equivalent of planting a flag. So, based on their laws, they own Earth. Unless something changes. While they explore, Terry says that the ability to travel through time is a power too dangerous for one man to have. Rip replies that's why he keeps to himself and never reveals anything about his family. Others could kill an ancestor and wipe him out. They get to the beacon, and Rip announces he's about to tweak the living hell out of this situation. Back to the fight, where the locals are betting on who wins. Ted rips Booster's suit and tries to short it out, but fails. He realizes he's going to have to kill Booster and is just about to do so when Rip pops in. He tells the king and Omnizon that their claim to Earth is invalid, and when they check the beacon, it's been moved light years away. Per their own laws, they lose and the boys go free. Omnizon declares that once she determines what Rip did, she will kill him, time, master, or not. Rip states he did nothing, and he didn't. Terry used the time bubble to move the beacon. The group all returns and the influencers get selfies. Terry tries to confirm what's going on back on Bayamore and accidentally sees that Booster is Rip's father. Now she has to keep the secret as well. Meanwhile, the Jaime Blue Beetle drops by to visit, but his scarab suit attacks him, taking us to Act 3 of this miniseries. My Bad Number 4 from Ahoy Comics by Russell, Ingman, Krauss, Fitzpatrick, Steen, Orsak, and Little. The penultimate issue of The Important New Superhero Universe continues to begin right here. We get an ominous bare first page with Huey Lewis lyrics incorrectly attributed to Socrates. Cut to the chandelier, breaking into the apartment of Lion Man, a.k.a. Lion L. Ritchie. Is it me you're looking for? I can do this all night long. He throws a lion in the zoo, but the offense really isn't clear. To celebrate, Winthrop goes to his favorite world's largest baloney sandwich place in his secret identity, only to be told he's been banned after attacking someone there in a previous issue. So he returns as Chandelier and gets his sandwich. Meanwhile, his new submarine is finished, the Lamprey, but doesn't have time to take it out for a spin as he's got a board meeting to attend. Winthrop arrives in what has become the corporate Maverick Togs, a hoodie, blazer, and chinos, only to find the whole board copying his look. During all this, Accelerator announces he must return to his home world to stop lizard pirates. Know that my heart, as well as my fried chicken, remains here with you. 
Later, an urgent request for help comes in, and a scout troop is trapped in a cavern. Can I use my submarine? I don't see how. Hmm, think I'm going to pass then. He has a whole inner monologue about how he has fun with his billions, mostly to outrun boredom. Suddenly, there's a news alert. Emperor King will have a big announcement tomorrow. Chandelier assumes it's to reveal his secret identity, and after telling Bates, who's in the midst of sex with the maid, that he's off on a mission to protect you, me, and everything we've built here. He leaves. What the F was that all about? As he leaves in his special plane that has a giant light bulb at the front. We cut to the Emperor King taking the almost dead rush hour to the hospital post-death trap. The lady asked if you have health insurance. No, I, I don't know, Helen Sarantz. Finally, King hands over his platinum card and the doctors go to work. Okay, I guess everyone needs to choose a body part and start operating. What a mess. Rush Hour survives mostly due to his power of strength of two men. King nurses him back to health, trying to keep Acid Chimp from throwing, well, acid on him. They appear on a daytime talk show where Rush Hour is shockingly not angry at King for maiming him. I knew it was a trap, but I walked right into it. For for candy! King announces he's no longer a villain and plans to help Rush Hour make L.A. safer. Weeks later, King gets some good news. Accelerator was torn in two by the pirate lizard, so it's a perfect afternoon. There's also an acid chimp backup story. He's all out of acid, and Emperor King won't buy him any more of it. So he writes a crude letter. Sell chimp big acid. It is okay. And presents it at Dicey Choice Chemicals. They refuse. No, chimpanzees can't buy acid. State law. But they sell him water in acid-labeled containers. He'll never know the difference. Chimp returns and throws acid on Rush Hour and King, but they just get wet. That was a funny prank, buddy. Chimp goes back to the chemical shop and attacks the boss there. They give him some acid on the house. This is truly a ridiculous title. The Human Target Book 5 from DC Black Label by King and Smallwood. Christopher Chance continues the hunt for his killer as he slowly dies from poisoning. All signs point to the Bwahaha JLI, so he's made it to Martian Manhunter. Of all the issues so far, this is the most disjointed as it moves among multiple stories in rapid order. Ice and Chance meeting with John in human form, eating lunch at a nice restaurant. Chance, in the past, watching his father beg for his life and trying to save him, becoming a target for a killer's bullet, but failing. Chance, also in the past, meeting with a woman named Emra from Titan. We're supposed to assume this is Imra Ardeen, a.k.a. Saturn Girl of the LSH, or at least an ancestor of hers. She's there to teach him how to handle mind readers. Chance and Ice in the afterglow of their night together. John and Fire also having sex, which is kinky, as his weakness is Fire. We bounce around these stories, getting little bits and pieces. Chance is trying to hide the memory of his father dying, but Emra explains that releasing the memory is how you get into the mind reader's mind yourself. Chance kills his father's killer, attacking him after the shooting, choking him to death. He then swears on his father's dead body that no one will have to face that kind of fear again. So this is a twisted version of a Batman origin story, and I believe the first that ever explained why Chance is the human target. We also learn that Luthor is the one who keeps Emra teaching people how to handle mind readers. He's keeping her prisoner on Earth. Chance and John learn each other's secrets. Fire is the one who got John to give Booster the money he needed as part of their affair. 
Fire also knew that Luthor had killed her best friend. So, hopefully, the next issue will be more straightforward. I hope so. Batman vs. Bigby, A Wolf in Gotham, Book 6 from DC Black Label by Willingham, Level, Lyston, Fowler Jr., and Lawfridge. Bruce and Bigby are about to break in on the bookworm as he is about to complete his incantations. Mrs. Stax changes into Grendel's mother and attacks Bigby on his own terms while Bookworm and Batman grapple the latter at a severe disadvantage. Meanwhile, the Robins are picking up Bookworm's associates. Bruce is almost finished when he bites down on a capsule in his mouth. What's that foam? The antidote. A poison, acid, erupts from his utility belt, which destroys everyone in the building except for Bruce and Bigby. So it's deus ex machina gas? Bookworm's body actually survives and escapes with the book, only to be stopped once and for all by Cinderella. They return to the cave and Alfred quits. He does that from time to time. Cindy arrives with a book and some dried bones, which Bigby uses to force out the real villain here, the ghost of Totenkinder. Bigsby's daughter arrives in the shape of a mighty wind to take them all back. Totenkinder is forced to go too. Robin, was that just too weird to comprehend or what? Bruce, we chose a weird life, Robin. Best get used to it. Hmm. This really seemed like the writer was maybe originally given a much longer run and then told to wrap it up really quickly. Black Hammer Reborn number 9 from Dark Horse by Lemire, Yarsky, Stewart, and Picos. Lucy and Skulldigger break out of the other Spiral City prison, finding their Doc Andromeda. He was convinced no one would ever find him. He's told that Lucy killed his doppelganger. They escape via the Skull Ship. Doc accepts that Lucy killed his double, saying, We all have to make sacrifices, just like Colonel Weird did. They make it to the other Doc's laboratory and find the device causing the worlds to collide. They're also met by Sherlock Frankenstein, and Lucy says they all want the same thing, to stop this. Lucy presents their Doc Andromeda, and Sherlock replies, Then who is that? They see the real Doc chained up at the machine. The other Doc transforms into the warlord from Mars, a.k.a. Barbalian's doppelganger. He just wanted to make sure she got there in time. Skulldigger takes out the Martian. Lucy tells Sherlock to give her the hammer, which he reluctantly does. The real Doc tells her he was forced to rebuild the machine. It's too late to be stopped, but it must be destroyed. Also, their Barbalian is just a foot soldier for the man in charge, the double of Lucy's father. He appears and gives some exposition. He is a villain there, but fought against anti-god. Here, he survived, but his family didn't. Now they can be together again via the Paraverse. Oh, and they can bring back Lucy's family, too, as long as she joins him. Hmm. Geiger, 80-page giant from Image Mad Ghost by Johns, Hitch, Frank, Pelletier, Cordos, Tomasi, Snedgeberg, Gates, Jones, Hendrix III, Johnson, Pichichot, Galloway, Navala, Mevins, Faber, and Prado. This is essentially setting up a Jeff Johns Geigerverse, first created in the eponymous title. The concept, an unknown war in 2030, makes the Earth's surface an uninhabitable nuclear wasteland. Las Vegas becomes a haven populated by bizarre extensions of the casinos, where people now live under the rule of the casino owners. Geiger is the last nuclear knight, a man somehow powered by nuclear rods who fights the new establishment if and when they find him. 
The first story is set in 1776, where Washington is battling the British forces. Turns out George has magic powers, wiping out an attacking horde. One of them becomes an immortal soldier of fortune, taking jobs from whoever will hire him. He is the Redcoat. In 2050, he's given a job to kill Geiger, with a lot of exposition for those that didn't read the first volume of the series. Unfortunately, the family of one of his other victims arrives to take Redcoat out, which it appears they do. Cut back to 1776, and we learn that the Redcoat's Masonic pin apparently is what brought him back to life. To be continued in Redcoat number one. We then get two pages showing a timeline of the unnamed fighting the unknown war. 1776, Redcoat becomes immortal. 1864, the Northerner begins his hunt. 1944, The Monster is Made. 1997, American Widow has her revenge. 2025, The First Ghost is captured on film. 2030, The Unknown War erupts. 2050, Geiger walks across America. So Johns has a lot planned here. We then get a quick story about how Geiger found his two-headed wolf Barney. This is followed by short stories about the casinos. The Safari, where refugees become prey for the most dangerous game. The Karloff, a monster-based casino where you make bets with your internal organs. Nero's, where a broken woman fights in the arena only to be killed by her son. Goldbeard's, where an old employee losing his memory keeps finding the same treasure again and again. The Manhattan Club, where a gangster-themed female owner takes a girl out to the desert to retrieve some buried whiskey and Saturn 7, where the daughter of the casino's builder returns to get what's hers. Finally, we get a first look at Junkyard Joe, a Vietnam-based robot soldier that starts as a military cartoon and winds up as a real being. I just hope that Johns actually gets around to writing about all this. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.